Did Swedenborg have any dialogue with Jesus? Did the angels help us find and connect with our soulmate? Does Swedenborg mention suicide? Will we be able to see God when we pass God away? God is omniscient, and why would How he can someone even? gain heavenly reward? Is the afterlife more life if God is the source of Does Swedenborg tell us anything about our Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg and Life. This is another installment in our 10 questions series. The basic situation is as follows. You have questions and there are more questions than we have time to answer in our regularly scheduled programming. But since you took the time to ask, we want to take the time to look into it. And this week you have a lot of great questions. We're talking about negative self-talk and how do we get out of it? Can we be redeemed or come back from evil? Uh, do How much does the spiritual world affect how you think and feel in your freedom? Can you feel your own body if you go to hell? Uh, all these and more answered from a Swedenborgian perspective to the best of our ability. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for asking these questions in the first place. We have a question from Tonicia. What if your last days on earth you caused more pain than your lifetime and left your children a legacy of anger and divided a family? How do you just get to go to heaven in a loving community? My heart really goes out to Tonicia about this. It sounds like it's coming from a, a, a real experience of pain. Um, I'd just like to say first that people don't just bounce right into heaven when, when they've died. They go through a process of learning and uh, clarifying so that they can learn who they really are. And then their inner loves and drives will take them up or down. Swedenborg talks about a book of life, and that shows up in the Bible too. The book of life is the recording. It's like a recording of everything that you've ever thought, said, done, felt. And it comes out into the open and you're in the next life. The angels are with you. The Lord is with you. There's a passage that Swedenborg says, only the Lord can sort that all out, really. So he's there helping it all get sifted. So when a person's book of life is opened like this, they have to face everything that their life has been, and they will deal with it in some way, and will have to come to terms with whatever it was. So this person won't just go straight to heaven in a community of love and joy without facing what he or she has done in this life and what kind of effect he or she has had on the people in their life. In this world, we never can really know the motives behind anyone's behavior. We can see things that are harmful, but we don't know what's underneath it all. Only the Lord really knows that. So we don't know if this experience here with this family that's been divided, we don't know if that person was, what was motivating that pain? Was it coming out of the pain of going, of death? Was it, we just don't know what the motives were. And Swedenborg urges us not to make spiritual judgments of people, to judge what people's spirits are like, not even in ourselves. So I always like to assume that the Lord is doing the best that he possibly can with the choices that every person is making 
and taking him to the best possible place, which is what Swedenborg says in his works. So the picture that Tonicia paints of this person's final days looks extremely bleak, but Swedenborg is very clear that nothing happens unless good can come from it. So I just wish this scenario, all the blessings of um, forward motion and some kind of resolution of the pain. Tiger's Eye 3 asks, does Swedenborg talk about the higher self? And higher self has a capital H and a capital S. So in looking up about this, I found one passage where Swedenborg mentions the higher self, but the H isn't capitalized and the S isn't capitalized, and it's a new translation of, I think, true Christianity. And, um, and so for that, he's not talking about the higher self according to the mainstream sort of idea you might have about it. But he, so Swedenborg does mention a lot the inner self, which is what the higher self might be also translated as. So my idea, if I think of the higher self according to its mainstream or pop culture idea, I think of it being that it's this better version of me or it's somehow wiser. I aspire to live and be the higher self. Um, I can act in alignment with my higher self or not. Um, there's also this element of leading that my higher self is something that is leading me towards becoming it and that it somehow knows more about me than I do. And, and then also from a Eastern idea of self with a capital S that could be referring to your Atman, your soul, which you sort of come to realize is one with Brahman is, is the divine has this divine quality to it. And so it's something we all are sort of connecting to this one thing that is the self. Um, and so all of those ideas of the higher self fall into alignment with what Swedenborg talks about, the inner self, more or less. Um, but then Swedenborg's idea of the inner self has some pretty unique qualities to it, too, that, that are pretty different from that idea of a higher self, too. So Swedenborg talks about how we all have an inner self, and we have an outer self. And the inner self, he says, is in the spiritual world, and our outer self is in the physical world. And this inner self gives us the ability to think analytically. It's the part of us that is our will um, and our intellect. So it enables us to have volition and perception, he says. Um, and since it's in the spiritual world, it can be connected to heaven or hell. It can have, it can have a good intention or it can have an evil intention, which is different than sort of your concept of the higher self. So in his uh, idea of it, it could be either. You could have a, a hellish inner self or a heavenly one. And he says the way our inner self is, is who we really are. He does call it, it's your true self. It's your spirit. And it is present in everything that you do. But a really interesting thing that he says about it is that we need this physical body. And it's through being in our physical body, being born into this world, that um, forms our inner self. And so our inner self isn't just this pre-made sort of ideal version of you. You are becoming it or you're shaping it through the choices that you make in your life in this world. And we do that by choosing to fill it with different things. He actually says that it's like an ocean of, of concepts and ideas. And 
um, and we can fill it with the word, you know, with true ideas, with spiritual truth um, or other concepts. So with this forming, he describes it being like uh, a tree in the ground. So as a tree, you know, as us in the physical world are putting out roots, you know, you can think of it being like making different choices and our roots are spreading out into different places. This inner self is the tree that's growing above ground and uh, having a life. So that forming, he also says that your inner and outer self both have to be reformed. And so, and that is what we do. We, we open ourselves to that process of reformation when we are choosing to learn truths and then applying them to our lives. And so wanting to move toward a life of love and service to others and letting go of self, selfish concern and self-absorption. So since the inner self is in the spiritual world, like I said, and it's connected to heaven and hell, if we are opening ourselves to this process of choosing goodness over evil, then it can actually be in the light of heaven, he says. It can even be an angel. You can be forming yourself to be an angel and you are in a community of angels already on the level of your inner self. Um, in True Christianity 401, he describes this and it gets even cooler. He says, the Lord has provided and arranged that the more our thinking and willing come from heaven, the more our spiritual self or inner self opens and adapts. This opening is an opening to heaven all the way to the Lord. And this adaptation is an adaptation to things that are in heaven. People whose inner spiritual selves have opened to heaven and the Lord are in the light of heaven. They have enlightenment from the Lord and a resulting intelligence and wisdom. They see truth from the light of truth. They sense what is good from a love for what is good. So Swedenborg is saying that our inner self can be opened up to all of heaven and all the way to the Lord. And then we can receive enlightenment um, and wisdom from that opening. So comparing it back to this idea of a higher self, in a way, if you are choosing goodness over evil and letting yourself, your inner self be formed and reformed in the shape of heaven, then in a way, it is a better version of yourself. It's, it has wisdom that you can draw from. Um, it can be leading you because you're opening up to the Lord. And so really it is the Lord that's, that's leading you from your inner self. And, and in a sense, it even has that divine quality to it because we are capable of connecting to the Lord in our inner self and, and then receiving guidance from that. So, so that's my little, uh, comparison of the inner self to the higher self. So Lexi asks, if God is omniscient, then why would he allow evil? Why did he just not create anything he knew would be bad? This is a fantastic question, and it's a really hard one. And this is something I asked myself once when I was dealing with some tremendous pain and was in a really dark spot. So in my despair, you know, when I was dealing with a rather hard situation in my life, um, I recall just praying to God with so much anger and so much pain around why suffering would be allowed in this kind of system that he created. Why, why, if I was a good person, did this have to happen? And so that happened a few years back. And since then, I found some resolution. Uh, and really, forgiveness became the means by which I was able to, to reconcile some of those, those wounds that I had initially received from suffering. But it wasn't until just a few years ago when I found the writings that I was able to fill in some of those big unknowns. Kind of the big picture system 
of like why things happened the way they did and how it really could be allowed in the divine design. So I want to preface this by saying I'm still new in my research, but I thought, why not share with you what I've found so far that's been able to help me navigate some of the things I had endured in my past. So the first thing that comes down uh, is the sequence of events in which the Lord allows evil to exist. And so I thought, why not start with love, um, go to freedom, and then talk about permissions of evil. So that's kind of the flow of it that I'm going to talk about. So love. Love is the essence of God, and it's the very thing that God wants to, to reciprocate with us in relationship. So I have a quote here from Conjugal Love 180. It says, Moreover, it is the nature of love to confer joys upon another whom it loves from the heart and to seek its own joys in return from doing so. And this being the case, infinitely more, therefore, does the divine love in the Lord will to confer joys upon mankind, whom he created to be recipients of both the love and the wisdom emanating from him. So this idea, this fundamental tenet of God being love that wishes to be in relationship with us is really helping me understand what God really is. When I was in a deeper pain of suffering, um, I questioned what God really was. Uh, but the writings have helped me understand that God is love itself, wishing to reach out and bring us into the fold. So an essential part of love is freedom. If you love someone, um, you want to give them the choice to love you back. If you, if you actually take away that choice, you take away love itself. And so God, in giving us the choice to embrace him, gave us a choice B as well. And that is the choice to reject him, to reject love. And if you reject love, then you actually can generate suffering or evil into the world because you are doing the opposite of love. And so this is a huge aspect of of the kind of good and bad of freedom. The, the, the beauty of freedom for us is that we have the choice to live a life according to God, live a life of service to another, uh, loving our neighbors and, and honoring God. But we also can, at the, at the, other, at the same time, uh, choose against that. And God gives us always that choice. And so if we do have the choice to move away from God, God creates a system of permissions whereby evil can exist. And these are the rules that he operates under for these permissions. And I found this in Divine Providence. Step one, we are all involved in evil and need to be led away from it in order to be reformed. Point two is evils cannot be set aside unless they come to light. To the extent that our evils are set aside, they are forgiven. Then finally, so evil is permitted for the purpose of salvation. Now, these fundamental traits of the allowance of evils to exist are for use. And I want to be really sensitive here because in the midst of pain and suffering, it's really hard to be able to see that this is somehow going to be useful. When I was enduring a lot of the pain of my past, I, I couldn't understand that there would eventually be some kind of use in that. But looking back now, I found that, yeah, it really sucked that I had to pretty much reach rock bottom. But in doing so, I, would, I, I came out with some tools, particularly around forgiveness, that actually have helped me uh, meet people in ways that I really couldn't have otherwise. 
I see my place in the world and my understanding of God in new ways. Um, and a lot of that has to do with empathy coming from those hard places. And so the point I think that, we, that I've seen in the writings is that the Lord does not create evil, but he does whatever he can in his power to help us get value out of navigating that. And in the end, make us maybe even more useful than before we endured any kind of pain at all. So the suffering that I dealt with gave me a compass point. And that compass point today has uh, served me tremendously well in helping others. I hope that maybe can reconcile that question in some small sense. It's something that I still deal with, um, but there's a lot in the writings that have really shown me that there's, there is a system and that God truly does love us. It is not of God, but he helps us navigate those things that are hard. Mary asked, how do evil spirits get a second chance at redemption? Reincarnation has been presented as a way for evil spirits to redeem themselves by coming back again and again until they got everything corrected. Well, it's actually much better for an evil spirit to be in the spiritual realm than it would be for that spirit to be born back onto earth. And I'll explain. Swedenborg learned that we're all born into earth life with the baggage of hereditary tendencies towards self-centeredness and materialism. But we're born with a clean slate in the sense that we are not personally responsible for any of that heredity. When we come of age to be able to make free, rational choices, only the selfish impulses that we freely and rationally choose to indulge in and make a habit of become a part, a permanent part of our spirits. Any tendencies that we don't make a habit of easily become dormant in the afterlife and can, yeah, just be put to sleep. Now, anyone who has become an evil spirit is someone who enjoys indulging in self-centered gratification more than caring about other people. To evil spirits, heavenly goals like sharing, helping, compassion, altruism, are nauseating, boring, and awful. They would much rather have enjoyments like manipulating people, hurting them, dominating, and taking advantage of others. So it seems to me that if evil spirits were to be reincarnated back into physical life, they would not come with a clean slate. They would come to earth with a spirit that was built out of selfish enjoyments. That actual chosen evil in the spirit coming back into this free will plane of earth would be disastrous. The person wouldn't have a chance. The spirit built mostly out of selfishness would be exceedingly attracted to even worse forms of selfishness and greed and would be able to use free will to sink further and further into the destruction of self and others. But in the spiritual realm, unlike on earth, no one is permitted to get worse. Everyone is permitted to get better and better to eternity, but out of God's mercy, no one is allowed to become worse which would be to further poison and destroy one's own spirit. Here's a quote from Spiritual Experiences 3093. In the other life, it is never permitted anyone to become worse. Whenever a certain spirit would add something new and accustom himself to an evil he had not previously made a habit, he was heavily punished to his horror. Therefore, he dares not to do it. So there are also such restraints as keep them from wandering outside the limit. There are endless incentives and methods in the spiritual realm for spirits to be led toward a better state, or at least a less evil state. 
It's God's ultimate goal and wish to bring everyone into heaven, so there are a vast variety of methods to achieve that. But for the methods to go easily, we have to want to be led in a better direction. In the show, The Good Thing About Hell, Curtis presented that for evil spirits who love self-gratification more than anything, nothing works to prevent them from getting worse except punishments. We already read that punishments can keep evil spirits safe from engaging in even worse evil, and here's another use for those punishments from Spiritual Experiences 2793. What punishments also accomplish in the other life? There are numerous punishments, heavier and more prolonged, according to the nature of each one's character acquired during bodily life. But punishments have the effect, over a period of time, of instilling them with fears, shames, horrors for the things that their nature has fed upon and drunk in. So, when they are associated with those who are better, and those things come up that agree with their nature, they are warned by those fears, shames, and horrors that they have been struck with, and are thereby apt to be led away from them. But still, they do not alter or change their nature, which remains as developed in the life of the body to eternity, but the punishments add on the means whereby they can be led away from their evils. Swedenborg learned that the nature or inner character that we choose while on earth can never change, but did you catch that we all, including evil spirits, can be led away from our evils. We presented an idea about this in the show Spiritual Fermentation. The Lord can, if we allow it, push our harmful impulses to the periphery and put them to sleep. Ideally, this happens with us being shown the nature of a bad habit so we can realize it's bad and willingly let it go. With evil spirits, again, this can only be achieved very gradually through punishments. Because the more something has become enjoyable to us, the less likely we are going to willingly let it go. So one last quote from Spiritual Experiences 1074. While these punishments do not actually take away evil, they do have this effect, that when a spirit is about to do it again, he recalls the punishment. Thus he is scared off. So either fear or shame keep him from carrying out the evils. A punishment inflicted just once does not work with these spirits, but it is repeated many times so that it tames something in them each time. This usually happens over many years and many times. So it seems that a very slow kind of reformation is possible in the spiritual realm for evil spirits. But if they were to be let back into the free will plane of earth life, they would rush into terrible choices and only get worse. Earthly free will is crucial to start out with, or else choosing goodness would be meaningless. But heavenly freedom is so much better than earthly free will. For more about that, see our show called Spiritual Freedom. Abdul asks, if you want to live in hell, do you feel your soul or body? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, because according to Swedenborg's idea of the afterlife, we are fully human. And so our physical body in this world has, uh, is, is the way it is because our spiritual body is fully human. So when we die, we lose the physical covering and then our spiritual body has a full range of sensation, all the five senses. But so our physical body deals in physical substance and senses physical things. And our spiritual body is receptive to spiritual substance and, or is spiritual substance and then is receptive to spiritual substance. And that is love and wisdom from 
the Lord. So if you've opened yourself up to love and wisdom in your life, then you're, you live in heaven and your spiritual body is fully functional. If you've rejected God and therefore you've rejected love and wisdom and instead have chosen a life of evil and falsity and made that what you love the most, then you still have a full range of sensation, but it's, it's then technically unreal, Swedenborg says, because this, you're dealing with the opposite of what spiritual substance really is. So I'm going to read Secrets of Heaven 4623, where Swedenborg talks about this. Whatever comes from the divine being, the Lord, is real because it comes from the ultimate reality and inherent life. But whatever comes from a spirit's sense of independent existence is unreal because it does not come from the ultimate reality and inherent life. People who respond to what is good and true have the Lord's life and therefore real life. The Lord is present in goodness and truth through their response to it. People who engage in evil and falsity because they respond to it, though, have the life of apparent autonomy and therefore life that is not real because the Lord is not present in evil and falsity. What is real is distinguished from what is not real in that what is real actually is the way it appears and what is not real is not actually the way it appears. So the appearance is important there. So really there's the Lord's mercy is allows those who have chosen evil and a life of evil to pursue their pleasure, but within certain bounds and, and experience a life that to them appears to be complete, that they have a full human body, that they live in a normal house, that they engage in their behaviors the way that they want to. But um, Swedenborg says that according to that, if heaven's light shines in, then it's revealed to be what it really is, which is, you know, monstrous. And, um, you know, instead of living in a normal house, they live in some creepy cave and um, or some broken down shack or something. So in Secrets of Heaven 4623, Swedenborg writes, Hell's inhabitants have just as full a range of sensation as heavens and are utterly convinced that things really truly are just as they experience them. When they are examined by angels, though, the same things look like apparitions and disappear from sight. The inhabitants themselves look monstrous rather than human. I was given an opportunity to talk with them about it. We believe they're real because we can see and touch them, some of them said, adding, the senses don't lie. Those things are still unreal, I was allowed to answer. They're unreal because you are intent on anything that's contrary or opposed to the divine nature which means that you're intent on evil and falsity, no matter how real they seem to you. Besides, so far as you surrender to evil cravings and distorted convictions, your thoughts are nothing but hallucinations. To see anything from the viewpoint of hallucination is to see what is real as unreal, and what is unreal as real. If the Lord in his divine mercy did not grant you these sensations, you'd have no sensory life. You'd have no life at all, since sensation makes all life. So spirits who are in hell are, a, are allowed in the Lord's mercy to pursue the pleasure that they find most satisfying in their life. But the pleasure that they're experiencing is, you know, nothing, Swedenborg says, of the pleasure, the true happiness that is in heaven. Um, and he, you can think of it as like, it's, it's unreal because it's, it's that idea that, you know, doing something that doesn't really bring happiness you just keep doing it thinking it is going to bring you pleasure. And that's really sort of more of like an addictive lifestyle that is just 
out for gratification and it never really brings the the deep satisfaction that you're expecting it to. Um, that's just the nature of evil and falsity. But rather than you know, it's not just some eternal, I mean, it's, it's eternal torment in that, that evil and falsity doesn't bring its own, it will never bring you true satisfaction, but people who have chosen this and, and love to pursue harming others and, and this sort of sick pleasure, they, the Lord wants to give them as complete of a life as they can have. And so he gives them this appearance that they live in, you know, fully functioning bodies and lives. So people who live in hell do feel to have a body and a soul. And, uh, but it's a world of appearance and fantasy and hallucination. Uh, but, but they're given that as a mercy from the Lord. Lee asks, so is Swedenborg saying that our thoughts are not our own, but they all come from the spirit world? That's a great question. That is a great question. Hey, sorry everyone that I'm here, but um, Chris and I had both picked out questions to answer and they ended up being similar enough that I thought we could, we could jointly answer. But also, I wanted to, to discuss this with you because this question that Lee's talking about, the spirits, spiritual world has given us ideas and concepts. This is something in Swedenborg, and it's a weird thing in Swedenborg, and I've been around Swedenborg all my life, so I'm yeah. a little bit Swedenborg weirdness immune. But you have only recently discovered Swedenborg, so I wanted to ask, what was it like for you running into this topic? Because we can kind of see it play out yeah, in, yeah. in real time. So, so what was it like, and, and how did you come across it? And all sure. That? Well, I'll say, let's take a step back before I even encountered Swedenborg's writings. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of times where you, you just have thoughts pop in your head, both good and bad, but sometimes those darker thoughts that just seemingly just pop up yep. uh, kind of freak you out. You know, like, why would I ever think that? Well, that's not me. I yeah, do that's that. definitely yeah. not me. Well, before I encountered Swedenborg's writings, I thought it was me. Mm-hmm. And this created a huge amount of anxiety knowing that, like, the person who I thought I was or the person that I was trying to be was not jiving well with some of these thoughts that were popping in. And so it, it right. just was a weird thing to interact with, like, where these things were coming from, how they could be from me, but clearly I had no other direction other than, yeah. you know. Because there's only you in your head. Yeah. Right. And so you're like, I, this is the guy I want to be, but the guy I want to be wouldn't think stuff like that, totally. so this must not be the guy that I am. Exactly. Crisis. <laughs> crisis. Okay. So you, you have this crisis, and what, so you come across this concept somewhere yeah. in Swedenborg. How does that change the situation for you? Well, it changes the framework completely. So you have these thoughts, and you know, the, the, you take this one dark thought that you have, and you realize that they actually don't come from you, but they flow into you from other sources. Yeah. And that changes the whole game, because now I can see that the person who I am, the person that I'm working towards uh, getting better and better at becoming, uh, that person doesn't necessarily have to own those thoughts. Right, right, right. And so that actually releases me from the pressure associated with those thoughts that I thought you know, I had owned before. So it's not, it's no longer, this is who I am, but who I am is more how I react to the thoughts that come in rather than what thoughts come in. Absolutely. And was it weird though? Yeah, I mean, like, like a lot of things in Swedenborg's writings, you, you, at face value, you kind of like take a step back and you gotta assess it and, and uh, yeah, it was a little weird at first. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not every day that you, you hear those kind of things if but, you hadn't grown up in it. I feel like that's the Swedenborg experience. From what I've seen with our audience on the web is, you encounter Swedenborg, and this is weird, but once you start to get into it, oh, this is actually cool. That's like, it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I imagine some of the science things you hear, like initially it's weird, but oh, it's cool when you get into it. And you would, but 
It's it's weird enough stuff that it was weirding Swedenborg out mm. when he first discovered it. I know you found a, a number about that. Yeah, totally was able to relate to what Swedenborg was, was, was describing in the writings. Right. Okay. So what do you got? Before the way was opened to me to speak with spirits, I was of the opinion that no spirit or angel could ever know or perceive my thoughts because they were within me and known to God alone. And then it once happened that I observed that a certain spirit knew what I was thinking, for he spoke with me about what I was thinking of in a few words and gave an indication of his presence by a certain sign. At this I was astounded, chiefly because he knew my thoughts. From this it was evident how difficult it is for a man to believe that any spirit knows what he is thinking. When yet he knows not only the thoughts which the man himself knows, but also the least things of his thoughts and affections, which the man does not know, nay, such things as man can never know during the life of the body. This I know from the continuous experience of many years. And so it's a, it's a slightly different phenomenon. He's talking not about the origination of his thoughts yeah. in the spiritual world, but that the spiritual world knows his thoughts. But still, what I love about that quote is, is him freaking out. Yeah. Like this, this is weird, and it's about the weirdness of the intimacy of consciousness in the spiritual world. Totally. So if you're weirded out by it, if I'm weirded out, if you at home are weirded out by it, Swedenborg was too. You're in good company. And this, well, this brings me to, so I had a, I had a question that I was going to answer that Robin asked. Robin asks, I'm wondering how Emmanuel Swedenborg would speak of free will versus the effects of spirits, both good and evil. And this is similar. It's not as much the thought. It's more uh, the, the, in, the influence on the will mm-hmm. that, that Swedenborg does say, hell can push you toward things. Heaven can pull you towards things. But we've also got this importance of free will. I know mm-hmm. earlier you were answering a question that involved free will. So if it's all spirits pushing us around, yeah. where, where's our free will in that? And actually, Swedenborg describes a time in which there were spirits in the spiritual world wondering the very same thing. So mm-hmm. I thought I would read that. This is from Secrets of Heaven 6324. These spirits also have reasoned among themselves about the influx of all thoughts and affections and said, If this be so, no one can become guilty and suffer suffer the penalty of any fault. But they received for answer that if a man would believe as the case really is, namely that all that is good and true is from the Lord and all that is evil and false is from hell, he could then not become guilty of any fault, nor could evil be imputed to him. But because he believes that it is from himself, he appropriates evil to himself. For this is the effect of his faith. In this way, evil adheres. It's a lot of, it's, it's the old translation, so it's really wordy. Um, no offense, old translation. Uh, but the point that I see him making there is that, yes, things are coming in. You're being influenced from the spiritual world, but you doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's all you. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like you're being given the tools with which you can choose to act and assimilate or not. Yeah. That if you feel like, well, it's sort of like it's sort of like a, you know that there's like shows that put people in artificial situations, but they don't know. Like I'm thinking of that what's that Ashton Kutcher show, um, uh, Punked? Yeah, it's called okay, Punked, <laughs> where it's like it's been a while. Here, we're going to put you in a situation. Yeah, since since you binge watched that <laughs> yeah. last, we're going to put you in a situation. How do you react? Yeah. And even though it's fake and you don't know it, that really shows something about who you are. Yeah, it, it, it's not like this huge moral high ground in that particular show, but some. The point I'm getting to is. We, it feels like this stuff is ours, so we get to see how we would act if this stuff really was ours. Mm-hmm. An evil, a, a dark thought comes into the head, right? And if you, if you think it's yours and act on it, it might as well be from you. Yep. Because that is really what matters is what you would act on. Yeah. So in that way, there's heaven and hell pushing on us. The free will really comes into how we react to that pushing. And I know that there's a lot of circumstantial influence, right? That there's... 
evil can be pushing you towards something, so there's less free will. You know, that even even in this world, you think about, sometimes you have less latitude to move because you're hungry and you're tired, yeah. so you're a little more cranky. I don't know if you get it like that, but... Um, no, never. <laughs> I am right now. Yeah. Um, and so, so that there's physical things that impinge on the freedom a bit. It's not always like you're just in this vacuum where you're completely yeah. free to move in any direction. If you've had a bad day, that impinges on your freedom. The spiritual world does it too, but it's, it's a long-term... How do you react to the things you're presented with? Yeah. Spiritual world being a part of that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's like, it's, it's just part of the matrix of life. There's influences from the physical world. There's influences from the people you're around. There's influences from the spirit you're around. In the end, there is something deep within there that only the divine eyes can kind of suss out, and that's the free will. So. Mm. We're free. I mean, even if it doesn't feel like it. We're free. Yeah. So those are those are. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts or anything like that on on the whole thing? No, I think that really what I've encountered in the writings, particularly with regard to this question, is a sense of feeling empowered through some of the things I hadn't thought I had power over. That's, so, a, you know, that's we, a great way to put it. Yeah. That's and I, that's what I like about Swedenborg. Yeah. It, it's weird. It start here. It, it's weird. Starts weird. In the end, you feel empowered. Yeah. And life becomes navigatable, navigable in ways that it wasn't before. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Yeah. And the true litmus test, I think, is, yeah, it seems weird at first, but does it work? Does it help your life uh, in, in useful ways? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So to go test it out, for helps us, may or may not help you. Hopefully it does. Thanks for asking your questions. John asked us, my late wife was a loving, kind, and very generous lady, but she did not believe in a God. Is she destined to go to hell? Or will I meet her in heaven? No, John, definitely your dear wife will not go to hell. Hell is only for totally self-absorbed and greedy people. Heaven and Hell 551 says, and the first sentence is a title, so it's all in capitals. All the people who are in the hells are absorbed in evils and consequent falsities because of their love for themselves and the world. And that means self-absorption and material greed. All the people who are in the hells are devoted to evil goals and the distortions that result. So hell is a state of mind that's all about self-gratification. So anyone interested in kindness and generosity can't possibly be there. Everyone who had made heavenly love a priority in their lives is headed for heaven. And what is heavenly love? Well, in Heaven and Hell 557, Swedenborg defines it. Heavenly love is loving constructive activity for its own sake or loving for their own sake the worthwhile things we do for our church, our country, the human community, and our fellow citizens. This is really loving God and loving our neighbor since all constructive activities and all worthwhile actions come from God and are the neighbor whom we are to love. So anyone engaged in kindness and generosity towards others is engaging in the mindset of heaven and is therefore on a path to heaven. God has no interest in excluding people from heaven based on the intellectual beliefs they had in the world. No one is in hell for not believing the right thing. Here in Secrets of Heaven 1032, it says, The Lord has mercy on the whole human race. He wants to save everyone in the entire world and to draw all people to himself. The Lord's mercy is infinite. It does not allow itself to be restricted to the few within the church, but reaches out to everyone on the face of the earth. When people are born outside the church and as a result into ignorance about faith, it is not their fault. Besides which, 
Failure to believe in the Lord because of a lack of knowledge about him never condemns anyone. And real knowledge about the Lord is not about intellectual ideas. It's about heart knowledge, about goodness and love. A lack of intellectual belief in God can sometimes just be a part of a larger transition that's going on. The Bible often uses the symbol of a fig tree as a part of a message about a time when belief systems are changing. Swedenborg learned that humanity has gone through stages of religious belief that started out well, but then got corrupted over time, so have had to be phased out to make room for a new and better religious point of view. The fig tree represents a simple earthly kind of goodness that is really important during this transition. And it can take the form of, I don't know if there's a God, but I just want to be kind and helpful to people. This is part of what happens when the ideas offered about God have become so corrupted that many just can't accept them. But anyone who has been engaged in genuine goodness and caring, like your wife, John, is going to be delighted in the afterlife to learn that the real God is the epitome of the very goodness and kindness that has been so central to her life. We have a question from Kelly. What do angels look like? Are they huge? My first answer is that angels are human beings. They are human beings that in this world have lived a life of love and charity and goodness and usefulness. And so they end up being an inhabitant of heaven, which Swedenborg calls angels. Um, however, the spiritual world, as Swedenborg describes it, is one of representation. It, things appear according to whatever's going on in the spirits of people, in the thoughts and minds and the hearts. So things have different appearances. For instance, Swedenborg had an experience once of seeing some babies off in the distance. And as he approached, he realized, oh no, this is just, this is a married pair. This is a pair of angels. But they looked to Swedenborg like babies because of their innocence and their goodness inside. He also had experiences of talking to one angel who actually represented the whole, his whole society of angels that he came from. And that might have looked like something bigger than a normal person. I don't know. We can't really account for how things would appear in a spiritual world that is not like grounded in static reality. And I know that people in this world have had visions of angels that seem huge, like they're 10 feet tall, or they're, they're huge and protective, and maybe too, that is some represent, representation of the use they're performing if they're keeping someone safe or something like that. So angels are people, but how they actually manifest, either in the spiritual world or to us as we're having dreams or visions or whatever, that's a little up in the air. Cheryl asks, how do you stop negative self-talk and live in the light? That's a really good question. And it's actually something I feel like I've been trying to figure out for the last 15 years. So if you figure it out or anybody else at home, let me know. I mean, I feel like we all kind of can get little pieces of it and share them in the hopes that eventually the human race figures it out. And I'm going to share a couple little pieces that I have here. So here's a couple of my thoughts. I want to break the question into two parts because you asked, how do you stop negative self-talk and live in the light? So I want to look first at the, how do you stop negative self-talk part? The first thing I would say is like, take yourself off the market. Uh, meaning when I encounter negative self-talk, it's usually 
um, it's usually banking on or attaching on to particular insecurities that I have. Insecurities being about myself, you know, how great, how cool am I, or insecurities about my future and my trajectory, my, my life story. Are these measuring up to where they need to be? Are they going to be safe? Are they leading me in the right direction? Um, it's sort of like, you know, if, if you I keep getting duped by these tax people, people help, help claim they're going to help me do my taxes. You know, they call me up, say, I'll help you do your taxes. And then they rip me off, you know? Well, go out and find somebody you trust and, and take yourself off the market. Like then if somebody calls, no, I don't need any help with taxes in the first place. And that's, that's a weird metaphor, but the application of it here would be if I, if my worth isn't negotiable, if I, if I'm not discovering, am I valuable or not valuable? Suddenly any self-talk that comes in, that's trying to influence me to reevaluate my worth falls flat immediately. So I would say put some time and energy into cultivating the ideas that, that your worth and your trajectory in life are, are optimal and it's non-negotiable. And this, for me, this is where I couldn't do that without Swedenborg's concepts because Swedenborg is saying that God is the one designing trajectory. The divine providence is actually the force that's moving you and moving the rest of life in directions. So rather like then, Am I responsible for how lame or how cool my life is and how do I need to improve it? It's, this, is, this is moving me towards something independently of my efforts and everyone else's efforts. It's actually the best thing that can be if I'm allowing the divine to work. And that me as a person, I'm who I'm supposed to be. I mean, God is, is molding things, but it's not like it's a test I got to pass. Like, go do this, be cooler here, get your hair cut here, things will happen right. Uh, if I take myself off the market in that way, they say that, no, they, uh, cultivate it, make it a mantra, make it something in your life. That, no, I don't. If somebody calls me saying, hey, can I talk to you about how valuable you are? That, I don't handle those calls. You talk to God. And the more you can really do that with your thoughts, I find that does, uh, that does push back on them. And it's, it's one of the strongest techniques that I found. Just notice what makes you vulnerable to the ideas in the first place and is there a spiritual principle that can counteract that fear or that vulnerability and can you really solidify that so that's the first part of the question the living in the light part well i think the most potent thing is do constructive things because you want to help that is the fastest mood raiser that that i've ever come across um it is hard to do even when you feel like you know that I've had experiences even recently of, and I've probably talked about this before in other questions of like starting to do constructive things, like just doing stuff around the house uh, or, or doing other things that need doing in life, but doing them because you're thinking about the help that they, the, the good that they accomplish. And then like immediately I'm feeling better. To get started on that is really hard. We made a video about it. You always feel, even last night, I was like, okay, I've got like half an hour. Don't look at stupid stuff on your phone. Don't just like waste time on your phone. And I ended up doing it because I was like, oh, this is fun. Like what's, what's uh, Canada's GDP? Like just like looking up statistics about how the world is. And it was sort of fun, but like, no man, if I had spent that time constructively, go out, do the dishes, figure out what you need to do for tomorrow. Make sure you get to bed at the right time. Um, that matters. It's hard to do. Even if you succeed at it, it's hard to do it again every time, but that really matters. The other thing is stay spiritually hydrated. You got to stay physically hydrated too, but spiritually hydrated, Swedenborg says that the truth is like water on a spiritual level. And even if you've drunk, drank, drunken that water before, 
you get thirsty again. You think about the way the human body continually needs water. Even though I've read all these Swedenborg books and I've got these ideas lined up in my head, it's for me it's Swedenborg, for you it might be whatever really resonates with you. Even though I've got those ideas lined up in my head, in the moment, if, I, if I'm not continually exposing myself to those ideas through reading them, they'll lose their potency, I'll forget them. So the more that I'm just in there pursuing truth, the better for negative self-talk. Because if that stuff is fresh in the mind, somehow it's like pulling the right angelic societies to you or it puts that stuff at the front of the mind or something, I just find that negative self-talk has less potency. You live in more in the light. Those truths are more alive. You just gotta keep exposing yourself to them. You don't just drink a bunch of water yesterday and then you're fine today. Stay hydrated spiritually. So great question and I hope, hope that's a little bit of help and uh, you know, I feel for you and uh, hopefully we all get there. So that's it. There's the 10 questions. Hopefully you found the answers or the, our attempts at answers or at least the discussion around it interesting, stimulating, and some kind of helpful tool for you to use as you progress on your own journey towards everything that is loving and wise. Really appreciate you being part of the program tonight like literally contributing the material that made it possible. If you want this program and our whole channel to do well, please consider liking and subscribing or subscribing and liking. It does mean something to YouTube and the more that YouTube likes us, the more that the world can see it. People who like our channel can stay and feed. People who don't can move on. So we're just trying to provide a service. Appreciate it. If you want to make this service possible from a financial standpoint, consider making a donation. We're a nonprofit organization, so we need that to run. Here's a little bit of our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. So please come back next week. We're going to be talking about conscience and the plane into which heaven interacts with us, how we can be using our higher principles to form something that will lead us to the life of heaven in the mind. So I hope to see you next week, same time. Take it easy. Swedenborg and Life is a production of the Swedenborg Foundation. Curtis Childs is our host and producer. Art direction by Matthew Childs. Technical direction by Stuart Farmer. Ben Keyes, visual effects technician. The content writing team is Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, and Chelsea Odner. Regular research and content support from Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition of the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, and Cara Dom, Latin consultant for the New Century Edition. Shada Sullivan contributes her heavenly voice to most of our readings. Amy Aquarola is our marketing communications coordinator. Alexa Cole is our online media coordinator. Our editor is John Connolly. The moderators for our thriving online community are Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Alexa Cole, Chris Dunn, and Chelsea Odner. And the executive director of the Swedenborg Foundation is Morgan Beard. Special thanks this week to Cara Dom and Chris Dunn for their extra contributions, and every week to the generous donors that make our work possible.